Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome once again to our Sunday morning Bible study. Uh, we are, uh, as we have the past few Sundays, been making our way through the book of 1 Peter, and today we come to chapter 3 and verse 7. The title of our lesson this morning is Christian Marriage, the Role of the Husband. Now, as we've seen for the last few Sundays, Peter is making his way through a, a, a series of different examples of how Christians uh, should behave in real-world situations. We've looked at Christian citizenship. We've looked at Christian employment. And then last week, we began to look at Christian marriage. In verses 1 through 6, we looked at the role of the wife. Today, in verse 7, we turn to the role of the husband. Now, before we get to our passage, let's review some of the uh, important things that we learned last week. The first thing we learned is that we naturally rebel against our God-given roles uh, because of our sin nature. The wife who was created in a perfect world uh, as a helpmate is now inclined to try to dominate and control her husband. The husband, who in a perfect world was created to treat his wife as his own flesh. Do you remember what Adam said? This is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. He was supposed to love her that way, but now he is inclined to rule over her. The second thing we learn that God has designed marriage as an illustration or a, a living drama, if you will, to put on display the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. Paul tells us about this in Ephesians 5. He said that marriage between a man and a woman refers to Christ and the church. And we'll talk more about that in detail uh, next week. And the third thing we learn is that the role is fulfilled so that the whole may prosper. This is the, the foundational principle, if you will, of, of roles, is the role is fulfilled so the whole maze prospered. And that was the third thing we learned. Now, last week we looked at the role of the wife. And today uh, we turn, of course, to the role of the husband. Let's first uh, read our scripture, our single verse. It says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, and so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, so let's start here. This is your uh, typical picture, if you will, of the, of the male chauvinist. This is the guy who, who really doesn't care about his own role. He just wants to make sure that his wife fulfills her role uh, like Scripture says. Now, as we've just seen, this is the sinful tendency of fallen men is to subdue or to dominate, control, rule over their wives. But as we're going to see coming up today, that perspective of a husband's role is, is, the, is, a, is antithetical, or it's a 180 degrees removed from what Scripture calls a man to do. Now, today's passage in 1 Peter 3, 7, it has a very specific message for husbands, a very particular message that Peter wants us to get. So before I get to that, I want to first turn to another uh, foundational passage of Scripture on marriage, and that, of course, is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 
to 33. And the reason I want to turn here is because this will help us answer some very basic questions about a husband's role in the marriage relationship. The first question that this passage will help us answer is, what is headship? Ephesians 5.23 says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. So this is where we get this idea of headship from. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean that the husband is the head of the wife? Well, two verses later, Paul begins to uh, extrapolate on this and give us some details. For example, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for leadership, protection, and provision in the home, but always doing that in a Christ-like, servant-based manner. Now, let me answer one question before I move on. If we go back to Christian citizenship or, or Christian employment or the wife's role, I said over and over again, it's all about submission. So how does this role of the husband relate to submission? Well, it has everything to do with it. You see, the husband, as he's loving his wife as Christ loved the church, the husband is submitting to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. So the man is coming under submission to Christ. So it has everything to do with submission. Now, let's move on. How does Ephesians 5 tell us to love our wives? Well, let me say this. Any man that comes to Ephesians 5 with an open heart is going to be immediately humbled by what Scripture and by what the Lord is calling him to do. Let me read a few verses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones." It is always significant to me, every time I read that passage, that nowhere in there do you ever read that men are to lead their wives. But at least five times, men are simply told, love your wives. Yes, the husband is the head of the wife. Yes, it is his responsibility to give direction and provision and protection and leadership and all of those things in the home. But it is always, always done in a context of Love. So what does that mean in real terms? Well, it is a love of self-sacrifice. After all, how did Christ love us? Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates His love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John Chrysostom, who was a, uh, an early church father, he died in 407 A.D., said this about a husband's love. Here is the measure of love. If it be needful that you should give your life for her or be cut to pieces a thousand times or endure anything whatever, do not refuse it. 
Christ brought his church to his feet by his great love, not by threats or anything like that. So should you conduct yourself towards your wife. Another thing that Ephesians 5, I always, I always find very interesting is that we are, as husbands, commanded to love. You see, genuine love, the world doesn't understand this, but genuine love is not a romantic feeling. It's not an involuntary attraction. It's not something that you just happen to fall into. It involves a willful choice. It's something you choose to do. And for that reason, it's an action that can be commanded. As I said, far from being something you just fall into, authentic love involves a deliberate, voluntary commitment to sacrifice whatever we can for the good of the person that we love. You see, this type of love is absolutely incompatible with an authoritarian or domineering style of headship. In fact, I would even go so far to say by using Christ as his model, Paul is actually, uh, in effect, forbidding us to practice that type of headship, uh, severe or abusive or domineering. But Christ was never like that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You see, the leadership that he's calling for is self-sacrificing. In Matthew 20, Jesus said this, For the Son of Man didn't come to, to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul outlines the characteristics of love. And it, it always is very interesting to me, and we've all heard this. It's, for, it's 1 Corinthians 13. We've heard it uh, read at weddings and things like that. But it's always interesting to me that when he lists the features of the characteristics of love, none of them are involuntary. None of them are passive. None of them are, are feelings-based. They all involve an active choice on the person that's loving. Listen to it. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It doesn't rejoice about injustice, but rejoices in the truth. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful. It endures through every circumstance, and it never fails. Let me tell you, when, when, when Paul asks husbands to love their wives, he's calling for all of these virtues to be present in us. You see, the husband who truly loves his wife will never yield his authority over her like a club. In fact, far from being the overlord of the family, the godly husband and father is called to be servant of all. You see, this type of love is a killer. It is a killer of self and selfishness. It calls for you as a husband to swallow your pride, to put aside your desires and your needs and your wants and your fantasies about how your marriage might be with another person. Put all of that aside. And you love your wife with a love that knows nothing of you and everything of her. Her needs, her desires, her concerns, her heart. And you sacrifice yourself on her behalf. I hear husbands say all the time, I would die for my wife or, or die for my children. But see, you're not being asked to die. You're being asked to live for them. Now, because we are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church, there are certain things that a Christian husband 
can never say. Number one, you can never say, I don't love her anymore. You see, in Ephesians 1, 4, it says this, that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, and He did that in love. Romans 8 says nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. See, that's how Christ loves us. It's a choice, a deliberate choice on His part, and He'll never walk away from that choice. So we can't do that either. The second thing we can't say is she doesn't deserve that type of love. You know what? Maybe she doesn't, but we didn't either. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were His enemies, we were reconciled through His death. Listen, while we were prostituting ourselves to sin, He still loved us. We didn't deserve that love, but He loved us anyway. And the third thing we can never say is, I don't have that type of love in me. Of course you do. If you're a believer, if you're born again, if you're regenerated, Romans 5 tells us that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. See, not just that the love of God has been applied to us, it's been put into us. So the fact is, we have the love of God inside of us, so absolutely we are able to love with that type of love. Let me tell you, the world tries to hang on to romantic love as long as it possibly can. But that type of love, that eros love, that just cannot be sustained. You see, eventually the bells stop ringing and the whistles stop blowing and life gets into this routine and it gets mundane and you start getting older and one day you look up and something outside of your marriage may look better than what's at home. Let me tell you, that happens over and over and over again in this world. But let me tell you, if you've been born again, you have a different type of love inside of you. You have the love of Christ that's been poured into us through the Spirit. And because of that, our marriages should be different. So husbands, I'm going to ask you a similar question to the one that I asked the wives last week. In this living drama called marriage... You are playing the part of Christ. You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. So here's my question. What does your love for your wife say about Christ? If somebody was looking at your marriage and, and understood that, that you represented Christ, what, what kind of picture, what kind of portrait are you painting of Him? Now, with all of that said, let's come back to Peter. I want to walk through the verses, uh, or at least the verse here, that Peter, and he starts out by saying this, likewise, or, or in the same way, husbands. Now, you got to remember, he just finished in verses 1 through 6, talking about the wives. You remember, he asked the wives to have respectful and pure conduct. He, he told them to focus on the inner person, not the outside. He, 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 taught, he called them to be daughters of Sarah, women who hoped in God. And he asked them to fulfill their role in submitting to their husbands. Now, he comes to verse 7, he says, in the same way, husbands. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, listen, shouldn't we walk with respectful and pure conduct just like our wives? Shouldn't we focus on the inner person just like our wives? I tell you, there's nothing... Can you imagine a man who's more concerned about how he looks on the inside than who he is on the inside? Don't be that. 
And we, shouldn't we have hope in God just like our wives? You see, I think he's saying likewise with respectful and pure conduct, with focusing on the inner person, with hope in God, fulfill your roles, husbands. That's what he's calling us to do, likewise. Now, he's going to bring out four things here, and I'm going to look at each one of them individually. The first thing he says is live with your wives in an understanding way. Well, what does that mean? Well, we'll see that here in just a second. Number two, show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now listen, ladies, that might offend you. Um, We'll find out in a minute if it should offend you. Number three, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And of number four, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I want to look very quickly at those four things. The first thing he says is, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. The Greek literally means according to knowledge. Live with your wives according to knowledge. Well, what does that mean? Well, knowledge of what? Well, knowledge of everything. Knowledge of everything that's relevant. For example, knowledge of her. Her needs, her wants, her expectations, her feelings. Knowledge of you, who you are down deep on the inside. Knowledge of God. What, what part does God play in this marriage? Knowledge of His Word. What does His Word expect us to do? What does His Word say ab- about us and how we should relate to one another? Knowledge of the world. What is the world trying to do to tear you apart? What is the world trying to do to have an impact on your marriage? Knowledge of situations, kids, works work, in-laws, all these things. Listen, you want to be a leader? Then you need to step up because you've got an awful lot to think about and an awful lot to process. Listen, you find any man with a good marriage, and I'll tell you, I'll show you a man that studies his wife, that, that knows what, what, uh, how she thinks, knows what she wants, knows what she likes, what she doesn't like, understands her anxieties, understands her feelings. Listen, study her. Watch her. Um, Be aware. That's what he means, the knowledge of everything relevant. Number two, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. It always astounds me when we read that, that we seem to go immediately to the word weaker and not to the word honor. Listen, I'm going to say a few things this morning that are politically incorrect. The world does not want to hear what I have to to say, but they are absolutely 100% biblically correct. The Bible clearly teaches us that men and women have particular roles and responsibilities in the marriage based on their gender. This is something, it's a big word, it's called complementarianism. The idea is that men and women complement one another when they fulfill their roles. The other side of this coin is something called, it's a big word, called egalitarianism. Uh, You could see feminism as another word for this, or at least an offshoot of this. Now, egalitarianism assumes that responsibilities and roles among husbands and wives have nothing to do with your gender and should emerge only from how competent you are. Now, which of those is right? I think it's clear that the Bible teaches complementarianism, but let me ask you a question. 
If your child were to ask you, Daddy, what does it mean to grow up to be a man? How do you answer that? Or, or if your daughter says, Mommy, what does it mean to grow up to be a, a woman? What do, you, what do you say? Do you come back with something like, Well, what it means is that you are going to be mature, and you're going to be wise, and you're going to be humble and, and kind, and you're going to have faith and hope and love and all of that. Listen, that's a, that's a great description of a good person. That's a dis- great description of a good Christian. But that doesn't answer the question. See, that wasn't the question. The question was, what does it mean to grow up to be one and not the other? In other words, are there built-in roles? Are there built-in responsibilities that I have simply because I'm a man? And and a woman has simply because she's a, a woman. See, egalitarians would say no, no. No, it has nothing to do with gender. It's all about competency. But see, what I want you to know is what this is doing is confusing everybody, especially our children. It's the dynamics in the home that, that form a child's concept of what it means to be a man or a woman. And it's the dynamics in the home that shape significantly their sexual preferences. And when these dynamics are confused, well, let me tell you, the consequences are catastrophic. For example, it's well known that a father's affirmation of their son's masculinity and the father's affirmation of a daughter's femininity is key in forming their sexual identity. But children are growing up today where where the fathers are not around or they're growing up in a home where these differences between men and women are just outright denied. Now let me say this, alongside that, it is absolutely tragic when an entire culture refuses to tell men that their manhood includes a peculiar kind of care for women. You see, we are taught in our culture through movies and books and advertisements and everything that you can see that women don't need men to take care of them, that women don't need men to protect them, that, we, that they don't need men to, to honor them. Let me tell you, let's be honest, the plight of women in this world has always been very, very difficult. In general, women have been used for millennia for sexual fulfillment. They've been used to keep house and cook the food and tend the, tend the children. And, and lest we are inclined to think that this no longer happens in a modern society, just go read the news. Look at the Me Too movement. we got two men running for, for president that have both been accused of, of, of improper actions toward women. Let me tell you, in society, it has always been this way, and it will always be this way because of this thing called sin. Is there any hope? That that all sounds sort of depressing when I say it, but is there any hope? Of course there is. You see, God has given us a way to mitigate or lessen the curse in this relationship between men and women. In fact, he's given us a way to not only protect women, but actually allow women to flourish. Let me give you a few examples. Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Now let me say, tell you, that is not the same as saying don't be harsh with one another. 
In fact, the Bible never calls out women at all and tells them, don't be harsh with your husband. This is a very particular, very special restraint commanded to men. And its intent is to mitigate the roughness, to mitigate the, the harshness that most men have inside of them because of this sinful nature that they're, they're born with. Ephesians 5, we mentioned this earlier. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love her as your own body, nourish, cherish. You see, before, in the perfect world, before sin, Adam said, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. That, that's how he was supposed to love her. See, what, what Paul is saying here is saying, go back to that. I, I want to mitigate the curse. I want to lessen the curse. I want you husbands to act like I would like the intention was in the very beginning. Love your wives the way Adam did before the fall, as his own body. Now see, I would argue that in every society on earth, that is countercultural. And it is all laid squarely at the foot of the man. Not because he's more competent, just because he's a man. And let me tell you, this responsibility is no more interchangeable with a woman than you could interchange Christ in the church. It is a special responsibility of the man toward women for love and nourishment and care and protection simply because he's a male. And I would also argue from Scripture that this responsibility of man of men does not stop once you walk out the front door of your house. Manhood doesn't stop being manhood outside the home. Now, with all that said, let me come back to Peter's uh, statement. He says, Husbands, show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, let me say this. There are ways that women are just as strong and maybe even stronger than men. Uh, anybody that's ever, ever been in a delivery room cannot dispute that. I can tell you, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind of about five people that I know, people that have been through tribulations uh, in this life, have been through suffering in this life, and they've come out the other side with their faith stronger than when they went in. If, if I named five people, I can tell you right now, four of them would be women. Some of the strongest Christians I know are women. But let me say this, there are also ways that women are weaker. Just go to the Olympics. Men and women don't race against one another. Men and women don't swim against one another. Men and women don't play basketball against one another. You see, the fact is men, it's just a fact that men are stronger than women. And, it, and the world is trying to deny it. They're deluding themselves. But it's absolutely just a fact. Now, in this verse, that is what Peter is focusing on. He's focusing on the physical strength of men versus the physical strength of women. And he's asking a question. How does a man relate to a woman when she is weaker and more vulnerable to his power? This is his answer. Honor her. Honor her. R respect her. Value her. Admire her. Put her on a pedestal, if you, if you will. You know, I, I hear people say all the time how the Bible is chauvinistic, how the Bible is just perpetuating male-dominated behaviors. No. No, has there ever been a scripture more pro-woman 
than this one? See, this is not mutual honor. That's not what this is about. This is a peculiar, special honor that God expects from a man just because he's a man. We said it a couple weeks ago. God is just, and there are always consequences for our sin. But God is also merciful. God is also gracious. And what He's done is He's given us coverings for our sin. He's given us ways to mitigate the effects or the consequences of sin in the relationship between men and women. You see, there's this curse called, He shall rule over you. And in order to mitigate that, He has inserted between the men and women a special responsibility that a man has. Honor her. Honor her. Honor her. You see, God has designed that men, just because they're men, are to honor women in a special way. Let me tell you, this is good for families. It's good for churches. It's good for our society. And it's good for women in particular. But here's the thing. Our society refuses to think this way. God has given us commands. God has given us ways to lessen the curse, to to lessen the effects of this rough, harsh sin nature that men have, and society refuses to listen. In doing so, they have forfeited a God-given restraint upon male male power, and they forfeited a God-given incentive for male valor. Instead, society has, has put their hope in the myth of human virtue. They say, you know, well, we're all good people and and if we just give men the chance, if we just educate them and we just ask them to do the right thing, they'll treat the women with mutual respect. Listen, it ain't working. It ain't working. Just read the headlines. Men need to be taught from the time they are little boys that part of what it means to be a man is to protect women, nurture women, care for women, honor women. They need to be taught that they have a special responsibility towards women just because they are a man. Now, let's move on. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Husbands, I want you to think about your wife this way. You are sleeping beside an heiress. You are sleeping beside a queen. You see, she is an heiress of God and a joint heir with Christ. God loves her. Christ died for her. Christ is coming again for her. He is all those things to her just as he is all those things to you. Now, you need to treat her that way. See her that way. Consider her that way. Finally, Peter says this, Do all these things so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, i got to be honest. I'm not real sure exactly what he means here. It could mean one of two things, or he could mean both of those things. I'm not exactly sure. He could mean that God will not hear the individual prayer of a husband. You see, when a husband's not doing what he's supposed to do, when he's not living with his wife in an understanding way, he's not... Um, honoring her. He's not treating her as a joint heir with Christ. Let me tell you, he's walking in sin. And sinful people have a hard time praying and a hard time being heard. Listen, 
to God's words in Malachi 2. He says this, Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and you wail because He no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why. And He's talking to men, by the way. You want to know why? Doesn't He hear my prayer? Because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner and the wife of your marriage covenant. See, here's a husband who broke faith with his wife. He's not treating his wife as, as, as a partner, as a, as a member of that marriage covenant. And God says, I'm not hearing your prayers. That could be very well what Peter means. Or he could mean that your praying together may be hindered. Let's be honest. When a husband and wife aren't treating each other, when they're not walking in the Word, the way the Word asks them to walk out their relationship, when they're not doing those things, it can be very difficult to pray together, as I'm sure we all know. I want to end today with one final uh, thought. I bought some property not too long ago, and I found an old uh, uh, deer feeder just laying out in the woods that somebody had built uh, years ago. And uh, I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to make a, a fish cleaning table out of that. And so I, I got it, and I bought some posts, and I started putting it up, and I had in my mind how I was going to build my, my fish cleaning table. Well, as you can see on the picture, it didn't turn out that way. Somebody else in my household had a different idea. Now, you may say to me, what in the world does that have to do with our lesson? We see as men, I know we like specifics. I can't tell you how many times in my marriage I said to my wife, just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. Don't, don't make me read your mind. Don't make me do it. Just tell me what you want me to do. We like specifics. So if all the previous stuff I've said for the last 35 or 40 minutes has kind of overwhelmed you men and you're sitting there just saying, Derek, just tell me what you want me to do. I leave you with this. Whatever brings her joy, do that. You, you want something to live by, to base your marriage on, to kind of kind of figure out what to do on a day-to-day -day basis? Whatever brings her joy, do that. You want to love her the way Christ loved the church? You want to honor her and care for her and nourish her? And by the way, have a woman that submits to you gladly? Whatever brings her joy do that. Next week, we turn to our third installment in Christian marriage, um, and we will be looking at God's perspective. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for your word. What an incredible word it is. And I pray for the husbands out there that are listening this morning, God, that uh, Holy Spirit, you'll do what I can't do. All of, all of this for me is just words. But you have a way of taking your word and applying it to our hearts and just doing incredible things. And Father, I know, I know there are men at River of Life that want to be this kind of husband, that, this, this, that loves their wife with a sacrificial love. God, help us to be those kind of men. Help us to, to train our boys, to train our sons to grow up to be those kind of men. I said it last week, a woman that submits to her husband is a woman that the world cannot understand. Help us to be men that the world cannot understand. God, help us to put the, in that living illustration 
that is marriage, of, of the relationship between Christ and His church. Help us as men to portray Christ so that people can see Him as He really is. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.